So welcome to the BSL Nutrition Podcast. I'm pleased to uh, be here today with Georgie Fear. Georgie is the author of uh, Lean Habits for Lifelong Weight Loss, Mastering Four Core Eating Behaviors to Stay Slim Forever. Georgie's a registered dietitian and board-certified sports nutrition specialist, an expert in appetite regulation and habit-based nutrition. Georgie's been coaching clients for 12 years to adopt healthy behaviors and thoughts around food. Thousands of her clients around the world demonstrate the efficacy of her approach for lasting weight loss. Uh, Georgie's advice has been featured in Women's Health, Men's Health, Outside Magazine, Psychology Today, Prevention, and ABC News. And like I said, her book, Lean Habits for Lifelong Weight Loss, was published in 2015. She's also co-authored the best-selling Racing Weight Cookbook in 2014. And you can find her monthly column, uh, her monthly nutrition column in Strength Matters magazine and at onebyonenutrition.com. Georgie, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I uh, read your book a couple years ago, and I have to say that it was an absolute game changer for me. As everyone knows who's listening to this, my background is in personal training, nutrition coaching, and having come from a paradigm of calorie counting, macronutrient counting, weighing, measuring. Um, it was very refreshing to have that as a resource to dive into and really get um, get some of that science behind why, why doing all that measuring, why all that quantitative stuff doesn't necessarily work for most people and how shifting to a habit-based approach can be significantly more beneficial for people, especially for me when my goal for people is to have lifelong realistic change in their eating behavior. So um, thank you for that, for one. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad that it, uh, I'm glad it helped you out. I mean, I think I, I'm, I'm no stranger to the world of macro counting and, you know, giving, giving advice and tips in that format. The, the problem is that it's, it's kind of like talking to 5% of the population because it's a, a vast minority that's willing to weigh and measure with any degree of accuracy. So yeah. this is like, know, progress principles for the 95%. Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, for me, it was like giving me permission to step away from doing that tedious stuff that I knew intuitively. Like, I know it's not really working for people long-term. Like, yes, it's the typical roller, to roller coaster type stuff where we see people get, they're getting good results for, let's say the 12 weeks that they're with you doing the program way and measuring, and then they get back to the real world. It's like, shit, now what am I supposed to do? Like, how am I yes. supposed to keep doing this stuff? So when we take a step back and we start to implement the habits, um, not only for the coach, but it's giving them coach permission to move away from those numbers and empower the clients to start to tune into some of those behaviors that we want to change. And so I want you to, to talk a little bit about um, how you developed the habits. What was sort of the, the process behind all of that? Sure. Um, so my background is, you know, I'm a traditionally trained dietitian, um, and I also, you know, did a lot of research during my graduate studies. So I, I have, I come from a very strong evidence basis. So it's it's tough to convince me of anything without ample scientific papers and and evidence. So uh, if we look at, you know, macro counting or calorie based nutrition education, there's just not a lot of evidence that it works. So um, if we start to look at, you know, how do people actually lose weight and keep it off, there's certain behavioral commonalities. And so it, it stands to reason that if we can teach people to do these behavioral things, that we can circumvent the, 
the totally artificial trajectory of, you know, learning how to weigh your chicken breast. Yeah. So, um, so it really, it, I, I did what I, what I do best, which is dive into research and try and make sense of large quantities of information. I just, uh, I kind of took it upon myself to read as much as I could about all the different things that help people, uh, achieve and maintain a lean body weight for a long period of time. And because I have a particular interest in appetite regulation and how the body uh, kind of navigates the energy input and output, I really wanted to find out how or if there's ways that we can eat that will help us lose weight by getting the most satisfaction mileage per calorie. So that's where the the macro um, and kind of food category advice in Lean Habits comes from. Beautiful. And so you came up with, or at least in your book, you outlined, what is it, 14, 16 different habits? Yeah, there's 16 in the book. Uh, the law of publishing is as soon as you publish it, you'll come up with something else. Which, oh, yeah. Of course, happened. Sure. So, you know, we've, uh, we've since splintered them into smaller segments and added more stuff. So, you know, my current clients were fiddling with about 25 okay. habits. And we have optional tracks, like so some people can work certain tracks and skip certain tracks. It's it's a lot more shooting ladders. Yeah, well, the, <laughs> and of course, of and, and, but that allows you to get more individualized with it because everyone's at a different point in their journey, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The nice thing about lean habits is that it's it's really the 16 that almost everybody needs. Mm-hmm. Like I will say, out of all of them, habit four is the one that occasionally needs to be skipped. Um, and habit four is the one about uh, eating mostly whole foods. Most people that venture into my circle have been at this nutrition game for a long time. They're not eating fast food on a regular basis. They're not drinking soda. So for most of them, they get to eat mostly whole foods. And it's like, yes, I'm already doing one of these. Yeah. So they feel really good about that. But it's like they're eating whole foods. They know they're eating healthier foods, but they still haven't figured out the amount uh, that they're supposed to be eating, how to regulate appetite and satiety and tune into that hunger and, and, you know, depending on their caloric expenditure and maybe they're getting in trouble with snacking and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. Everybody's a little different. Um, it kind of, it's like, you know, these 16 skills are beneficial for just about everybody. Um, but the, the factor that might be keeping, you know, Joan from her goal might be one of them specifically it might be two of them in a major way it it may not be all 16 and it's a little different for everybody some people it's a quantity issue some people it's alcohol or sugar Uh, some other people it's snacking as you said so it's everybody's different which keeps my job very interesting well let's so let's assume that the majority of people and because you know a lot of people listening so so i'll tell you i have a lot of um a lot of middle-aged females that listen, a lot of moms, a lot of moms that struggle with fatigue, energy issues, sleep issues, trouble losing weight, and things like that. And one of the things that I'm curious about is, do you find or have you found throughout your career that one of the primary drivers of the inability to lose weight and one of the things that your habits help most with is creating a, a level of caloric restriction? It's just teaching people how to kind of manage their calories more effectively? It, when it comes to weight loss, yes, it is. It's all about calories in versus calories out. And it's, you would think on the surface that counting your calories is the best way to eat less of them. Similarly to if you wanted to spend less money, it kind of makes sense. Like maybe you should 
tally up your expenditures. Yeah, so if you want to watch your calorie intake, you'd think, okay, so the best thing I can do is get the calculator out and start tallying it up. But this interesting thing happens when we start to try and do the arithmetic to figure out how many calories we're taking in versus expending. One of the main issues is that it's all estimates. You know, what you see on a food label, I hate to tell people, is not very accurate information. There's like a 20% margin of error that's legal. Sure. Um, and nobody really has the funding to enforce that sort of thing. So it's an estimate at best. Um, and there's all sorts of examples of like, you can buy a, a package that says it's got 45 grams of croissant and it's really got 60 grams. Yeah. So, you know, there's all sorts of uh, inaccuracies there as well as expenditures. You know, any biological phenomena is going to have a range. So, you know, you can, no matter how many websites you go to and plug in your, your weight, your height and your activity level, it's, it's all going to spit out different numbers and they're all guesses. Sure. So even if you assume there's a, a consistent fudge factor, um, factors change in, in, in accordance to the ambient temperature or your sleep wake cycle or that time of the month or your, you know, so many different factors that it's, it's really best to try and not get a grip on the numbers directly, but let your body do the math and read your body signals, such as, yeah. am I hungrier? Am I getting satisfied? Am I sleeping okay or you know, not able to sleep? Those sorts of things can really be more accurate. Yeah. And so to give people an idea of what some of these habits are that we're talking about, um, habit number one is to eat three to four meals per day without snacking in between. Habit number two is is to master your hunger. And that's where you talk about allowing 30 to 60 minutes of actual hunger and how to identify those hunger signals before your, your next meal and, and sort of giving the people these tools to uh, tune into what their body's telling them so that they can then basically eat less calories throughout the day so that they can then lose, lose body fat successfully without focusing on the numbers and the logging and weighing and measuring because that's almost it well it's unrealistic but it's also super stressful for for people and not effective long term right yeah and the stress of uh calorie logging and you know tallying up points or or other you know various or arbitrary currency of calories actually has been shown to be stressful enough to increase appetite interesting it's ain't like, that a kicker right <laughs> The stress of counting my points makes me hungrier. Like, wait a second. <laughs> it's like it's like when you, uh, you know, we've all had that client that they're they're working with you for nutrition or an, a, an nutrition plan and trying to lose weight, and it's they go on vacation, right? They can't like so let's say the scale doesn't budge, and then they go on vacation for a week and and totally let loose, and of course they drop weight. And it's the whole psychological perceived stress that they're under that's a huge factor in, in why people do what they do, why they eat what they eat, the emotional triggers, things like that. Yeah. A lot of times when people go on vacation and they don't have a scale, they panic and they're so careful about what they eat that they come home and they've lost weight when they've been at a plateau for ages. And I use that example all the time to help people see the mind games that happen because when you're getting on the scale and it's telling you, you're the same 140 pounds that you've been. It gives you a measure of, okay, I don't have to try any harder because what I'm doing is enough to maintain. Mm -hmm. So it has a way of stopping people from actually losing weight. 
And then when they don't have the scale there to give them that little permissiveness, they discover they can watch their food intake a little more carefully than they have been. And then they come home from vacation. They're like, oh, wow, 136. Haven't seen that number in ages. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Instead of logging every little calorie, it's like, oh, I can, I can have a cup of veggie straws because I haven't yet hit my caloric intake for the day. Right? Whereas normally they'd be like, oh, I feel pretty good right now. I, I don't think I need anything else. Right. Yeah. Giving them yeah, exactly. To keep eating more. And then continuing into the habits as we talk about eating just enough is where is that point where you're satisfied, but not stuffed. And, you know, um, I, I, I have found so much value in just habit number one, implementing that with my clients. And I, I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about why we know now, or, or what is the research said, because conventional wisdom used to be, you know, you need five or six or more meals per day to quote unquote, stoke the metabolism. And now what do we know to be true about how many meals per day someone needs? So um, multiple small meals per day is ideal if you want to get more calories into someone. (laughs) And if you, it's true, like, you know, little old ladies in the hospital, I've done my share of white coated work and, and they'd be like, yeah, you know, Mrs. Jones is only 95 pounds. We got to beef her up. So we're giving her, you know, six small meals. And I'd be like, wait a second. Why do we do that for people that want to lose weight? And people would say, I don't know, because that's how we get more calories into people. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true. If you look at um, you know, research on appetite uh, regulation and satiety, if you give someone lots of small feedings, it's, you can get more calories in. You know, um, ask anybody that's snacked all day without eating a real meal. You can turn around and be like, wow, I actually ate 3,000 calories worth of pretzels and peanuts. And M&Ms. Never picked up a fork, you know. It's <laughs> it's easy to do when we eat. Um, so when we eat, the uh, I'm going to generalize some of the the factors that happen biologically. So there's four main clusters of appetite signals, and one is the stretch receptors in our stomach. So stomach, if you think about it as a, a glorified bag. When you put food into it, there's receptors in the walls that are like, hey, we've got some, some weight and some volume going on here. We can sense the stretch. So there's direct nerve connections from the walls of the stomach up to your brain. And so that sends the signal, getting stretched down here. So your brain picks that up. Now, that alone is not enough to make you feel full. As you probably know, if you chug 16 ounces of water, you feel like, oh, okay, full for a minute or two, but it's not the same feeling as if you had eaten a sandwich. Sure. It's, it's fleeting and it's just a volumetric kind of bloaty feeling. So um, that needs to be followed up by chemical signals that you actually took in some calories and nutrients for your brain to say, oh, okay, we're legit satisfied. So the way that your body picks up on those nutrients is kind of threefold. One, there's various chemical messengers that signal the presence of carbohydrates. Your brain has neurons which uh, increase firing in response to glucose, so they can directly sense through the blood-brain barrier the rise in blood glucose. Your brain can also sense the uh, rise in insulin concentration in your blood. So we know that your pancreas responds to the carbohydrate by kicking out insulin. Your body picks that up too. Um, There's a whole glut of hormones that are produced by the small intestine, large intestine, and pancreas. And... Some of those are produced in response to protein intake, and some of them are also um, 
created in response to fatty acid digestion. So once uh, triglyceride molecules get cleaved into smaller pieces, some of those run their circulate run through the circulation up to the brain as well. So your brain can kind of take stock, like, oh, we've got some fat, we've got some carbs, we've got some protein, sufficient stretch going on in the stomach walls. I'm going to vote we had a good meal. Right. And it'll actually give you that satisfied feeling. So if you think about eating a mini meal, the signals are going to be less because you can't make a miniature meal with a lot of carbohydrates and protein and fat and stretch. It just, it doesn't work. So um, it seems like there's a kind of a, a crucial size to a meal, which I've seen referred to as ballpark 400 calories mm. worth of food to really get a, a lasting reduction in hunger that that's going to last for a number of hours. So, so from a number of meal standpoint, then that's, that's part of the recommendation of eating three to four meals in terms of suggesting that seems to be like, what's the logic behind three to four versus two meals? Well, some of that comes from um, evidence about number of feedings. So again, I, I did not make any of this up. Like really, it's, it's just gleaned from exhaustive combing of the literature. So there's been studies that studied uh, anywhere from like two to 16 feedings a day to look at, you know, how do people feel in terms of hunger and satiety? And so people that eat lots of small meals, like six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 small meals a day, they report not feeling strong hunger signals, but also not feeling satisfied. And I call that hunger purgatory. You're kind of like, never really hungry, never really satisfied. You don't have a whole lot of grip on either of those feelings. You just kind of keep putting food in your mouth when the watch goes off. Right. And while that's not the worst thing in the world, you know, it's not starvation. It's also kind of depriving you of a, a genuine satisfied feeling. And there's something nice about being able to order an entree at a restaurant as opposed to like a kid's meal or an appetizer. Um, if somebody goes to two meals, they they tend to experience more hunger as would be expected because they, um, you know, at some point you have to have at least 12 hours between meals. You know, most people don't space them out exactly 12. Most people, if they're going to do two meals, they have one stretch that's longer than 12 hours and, and one interval that's shorter. Mm -hmm. So I have seen it work um, in practice for people to eat two meals. The one caveat that I usually give people that want to try this is it often works for two weeks and stops working because what happens is your body adjusts to um, delaying the feelings of satiety until you've taken in enough calories. So your first day, you might eat two 700-calorie meals and you're like, whew, feeling so good. You know, I know I only had 1,400 calories. That's totally a weight loss day but I'm feeling good. But then after a couple of weeks, you might eat those same 700 calorie meals and you're like, mm, not satisfied because the body's picked up on what you're doing and it's recognizing that it doesn't want you to waste away. And so it, it kind of amps up the, the drive for more calories. The other challenging thing is if you try and get all of your calories into two meals, it tends to become a game of calorie density. And what I mean by that is yeah. you can't really get those five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables in unless you're going to like bust a gut from the volume. Like your, your stomach is only made to tolerate a certain volume of food. So um, 
people tend to start shortchanging themselves on some of the fruits and vegetables um, and fiber if they go to two meals a day. So it can work. I just find three or four tends to capitalize better on the natural the natural rhythm of get hungry, eat whole foods until satisfied, wait until you're hungry again. Like if we don't mess with that, that usually puts people at three or four. And it tends to involve some willpower and some restraint to get down to two. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And that's totally what I've observed. And uh, I guess, of course, it depends on the person, but that three to four hours seems to be a, a really decent amount of time for them to consume a, a balanced meal, observe how they do with that meal give them the time to start to experience some hunger again before their next meal, as well as, you know, based on those hunger signals, which I believe that's, you know, your next habit is mastering your hunger after the three to four meals. So then it allows them to tap into, okay, what does it mean when I'm starting to get hungry? And I loved this habit because it's important. Why, like, why is it important for us to be getting hungry before our next meals? And this is one of the things in the book that I think is people tell me consistently that it's the most original. And uh, I tend to agree. Like, There aren't too many people that, that are uh, telling their clients to get hungry. A lot of people have negative responses to hunger because they were hardcore dieters in the past or they had experience with disordered eating. And it's become such a negative experience to feel hunger that we almost become professionals at preventing it by packing a ton of snacks and um, telling people that we're hangry every time we're hungry. And <laughs> That's right. it's, it's really not necessary to treat hunger as such a, an unpleasant thing. Like if you really tune into it, it's a mildly uncomfortable sensation, kind of like having to use the bathroom or feeling tired. And it's something that we can handle. And being able to feel a moderate amount of hunger, and I'm not talking about like starving for hours and you know being zen about it. I'm talking 30 to 60 minutes of hunger is a natural thing for someone to tolerate. And when somebody's able to feel that and stay calm, it has an amazing empowering effect. Mm -hmm. Like empowering is a word that so many people use to describe their feeling the first time that they're really feeling successful with feeling hunger and not freaking out about it. Um, and it, it makes weight loss so much easier when right. you're able to say, oh, okay, 30 to 60 minutes of hunger. I feel that. I stick on my prayer food. I eat food. Good. And a lot of times what I've noticed is that, well, one is it seems like it's more of a learned response is the, right. The first few times, the first few meals, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm getting hungry. And, and I'm, you know, I've come from similar, not in terms of disordered eating, but feeling like you know, to maintain muscle mass, like I need to be eating every couple hours and, and, you know, things like that. And so God forbid I should get hungry. It means my blood sugar's dropping and that's catabolic and all that good stuff. Right. So, um, it seems like it's a bit of a learned response, but also kind of go longer and longer each time and feel that same level of comfort. You're more comfortable with being hungry from meal to meal, which obviously is is beneficial to the degree that oftentimes you realize, holy crap, I don't even think I was actually hungry at that given meal or at that given time, maybe I was just bored or thirsty or whatever. It wasn't really genuinely hunger. Yeah. And that starts to open up so much fascinating self-awareness because we can learn so much about ourselves from the times that we were eating, but we're hungry. It's like, 
what was the cue? Like, was I trying to feel accepted? Was I trying to take the edge off of being nervous around that person? Mm-hmm. Was I bored? Was I looking for pleasure? Was I feeling uh, disappointed at something? Like, we can, it's, it's really, really incredible. So since we're starting to go into the emotional, because that's often a very significant reason why we eat, is to feel comfort, sure. comforted. What, what do you see and how do you address when people eat as a means to experience comforting, experience love, the, the, you know, the emotions that they may be missing out on? How, is that, how do you address that in your practice? So if we, if we think about emotional eating as coming in, dare I say, two flavors, there's um, the use of food to mitigate, lessen, or numb a negative feeling. Mm-hmm. as a coping mechanism might be a good way to say it. And then we've also got the the aspect that food is really enjoyable. Like <laughs> eating is pleasant. I'm here in Rome right now and I have been on like a wild cheese capade for like three weeks because there are so many delicious things to eat. Oh, that's um, amazing. And I don't want to deny anyone, you know, joyous experiences. So if we look at the the former, you know, using food to reduce or handle a difficult emotion. That's where I find um, we're doing ourselves, dare I say, a disservice because there's so many other things that can be done for um, for those sorts of needs that using food is really a, uh, a cheap, widely available and inferior substitute. So, if we think about what are the other things that a person can do, such as having enriching relationships and conversations with other people, turning to their loved ones when they're having a hard time, being able to um, accept their own emotions rather than squash them down with desserts. You know, there's, there's so many psychological and emotional management tools and techniques that, you know, it, it just could contain volumes and volumes. Um, and people, it's tough to discover those things if we're medicating with food. So, you know, I'm not an expert, although I, I do deal a lot with emotional eating. Um, everybody's a little different. You know, some people find that they're really great, really great outcomes come just from saying, you know, I'm not going to use food. I'm going to learn how to handle this stuff on my own. And they don't really need a whole lot more guidance than that. Some people find that they feel like they really do need a professional hand with the emotional management. And in that case, a mental health professional is the obvious choice because that's what they do. They help people through managing their emotions. Um, when it comes to the, the other type of emotional eating of wanting to add pleasure to your day, wanting to share love with your family members, or your dining companions, I don't feel like that has to be at odds with the physiological pattern of eating in response to hunger or eating in accordance to our body's needs. I think about it like, I really enjoy food. I look forward to my meals. I just wait until I'm hungry to eat them. Mm-hmm. So I'm eating gelato. I'm eating cheese. I'm eating, you know, amazing produce. And I'm not just living on like cheese and gelato, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still trying to wait until I'm hungry and stop when I'm appropriately satisfied. Because there's no more joy to be found in pushing past satisfied. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think where 
people then get in trouble and something that resonated with me that I know resonates with people listening is when we do, we're in Rome and we're enjoying pasta and gelato and cheese and all of those things. And then we overeat and then we're saying, but I still am trying to lose weight. And now I feel guilty for Mm -hmm. eating as much as I did or drinking as much as I did. And now I went and I screwed it up. And you know what, since I screwed it up, I'm just going to keep eating and drinking and say, screw it. And I'll just start again when I get home. Right. uh, Right. So how do you address those guilt aspect? Um, Because I believe that's, it's later on in the, in the habits that you talk about that stuff, some of the emotional eating aspects of just saying, you know what, just let it go. It was one, one little meal, right? It really is. Like nobody's weight problem is the result of one meal. Just like nobody's perfect body is because they had a salad for lunch. Like it just doesn't happen on an acute sense. It's really what you do day in and day out. So if it's vacation or if it's one-offs, um, I generally tell people not to worry so much about it. Um, if you act in a way that you're not happy with, like we all do that. Like I've had plenty of incidents in my life that I do not look back on proudly. Um, I think the best thing that we can do is try and understand because the application of blame and guilt does no one any favors. It just puts us into a negative mind space and research shows we can't learn as well when we're in a negative emotional place. So, um, you know, my main gig is I'm not an author, I'm a coach. So now I'm talking to my clients every day and that's what I love to do. That's what gets me up in the morning. And I know when I have a client that's upset over something that they ate or drank, the most important thing is to let them know that it's not the end of the world, that I understand and that they can understand that they haven't done anything criminal. It's just a behavior. It's just food. And we see what we can learn from it. And the great news is that it's never shot. Like you've never blown it. It's never the the last meal or the the, mm-hmm. the lunch of your life and you just wrecked it. It's it's just one meal out of hundreds of thousands that you're going to eat. Um, so the stakes are small, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's just, you know what? You may not feel great about it, but you look forward to your next meal and make it back on to whatever your plan is per per the habits and yeah. continue, continue to work you move yourself closer towards your goals instead of completely sabotaging yourself for the rest of the way yeah i think when people feel really guilty they they feel like they should um redeem themselves by doing something to compensate and that just always causes trouble whether you're like i'm going to do two workouts tomorrow or i'm just going to skip breakfast and lunch or i'm going to you know, do something. It's, I recommend just let it go. Wait till you get hungry, eat. Totally. That simple. Yep. Yep. And you use it as a learning experience. I mean, look, it's again, it's a meal. It's not a big deal. Is it, is it your social support system? Did you put yourself in a situation that, you know, you know, when you get in those situations that you tend to not make the best decisions, that's something to really be cognizant of because people get sabotaged, whether it's family, friends, coworkers, things like that. And so you have to put yourself in the best possible situation so that you can stick to, you know, move closer towards your goals. Damn the social circle and the family. Damn social circle. <laughs> Seriously, I was trying to sabotage, rationalize their own bad behaviors. Okay, cool. So, so we, 
So you start your, your lean habits, and we talked about three to four meals. We talked about identifying hunger and eating just enough. And then you start to go into the types of foods that were, you know, eat mostly whole foods, eat lots of veggies, have a protein goal, eat healthy fats, choose your carbohydrates wisely and, and carbohydrate timing. And, and then, you know, we move into kind of being aware of, of people's treats. And I'm just keeping giving people an idea of all the rest of the habits and then hydration. That gets fun there. Once we start talking treats, it's like, yeah, that's one of my favorites. Talk about the treats just a little bit. If you're listening, you can kind of think about your own eating patterns. And if you're not at your ideal body weight, there's a few basic camps people fall into. One is, as we mentioned, the quantity. People just aren't waiting until they're hungry or they're eating past comfortable satisfaction until they're feeling that like overfull, I want to unbutton my pants feeling. And then a completely different uh, sort of characteristic that can happen to people's diets is that they're just having a large proportion of things that are treats. Um, and when it comes to treats, what I mean by that word would be things that are, we're not consuming chiefly for nutritional value. They would be things like sweets, desserts, candy, alcohol, um, or fried foods. You know, nobody's like, I'm going to have those fried foods because I really need the, you know, trace of vitamin A that's in them. Like it just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. We're eating fried foods or desserts because they taste good and because we want to have that pleasure in our day. So uh, the way that I approach them with people is that the first step we need is uh, an awareness. So getting an idea of which treats you're consuming most frequently, what sort of portions you're having, um, how often, and recognizing that that's not a shameful thing uh, is a big step for a lot of people. So some people have really no trouble at all filling out the form that's in the book of you know, you log for a week how many desserts you have, how many fried foods you have, how many uh, sugary or alcoholic drinks you have. Some people have no problem at all. But for some people, that is a really difficult task. And the more difficult it is, the greater indication that somebody's feeling a little guilty about those things. Mm -hmm. um, and then once we have that information, that awareness translates into options. And so there's no right or wrong way. We know that the big idea is if you want your weight to come down and your treats intake is relatively high, I would say greater than 10% of your calorie intake, you can probably benefit from getting it to come down. Um, so for most people, if they're having yeah, more than 200 or 250 calories worth of sugars or alcohol a day, we talk about trying to get it down to the 10% range. But the neat thing is that sometimes people's treats intake could be, you know, high double digits and just getting it down by five or 10 is enough to have weight loss. Like you don't have to get to any particular amount. It's just a matter of how far do you want to go to start seeing progress? You just have to accumulate enough change. Yeah. That's where creating, that's where actually logging and, and getting a really good idea of how much you're taking in, creating that awareness around it really can pay off. It's saying, wow, I never realized Every time I walked by Joe's desk, I was grabbing a handful of Hershey's, you know, mini Hershey bars or, yeah. or a handful of chips in the cabinet or whatever it is. That stuff is super calorically dense and really adds up for people. And then when they understand, it's like, wow, I never realized I was eating that much. Yeah. And if somebody's really enjoying something, 
then that's one thing. But it's a completely different experience if you're just eating absentmindedly or it's a stress response to like an irritating coworker or something. So I'm like huge on maintaining the pleasure in people's lives. Like this won't be sustainable if people do stuff that makes them less happy. So one of the things I really think is crucial is to separate which of the treats that you eat are really worth it. Which ones are high joy items? Um, Don't drink crappy wine or eat stale cake Hmm. is the basic idea. If you're eating something and it's not awesome, put it down. Mm -hmm. keep, Keep the awesome ones in your life. And that pairs out a lot of calories for a lot of people. So you're in Rome. You uh, I, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me uh, oh, today. Trouble. I didn't realize you were, you know, on vacation or. Um, but so, what is what is your what is your typical nutrition look like? What's your what's your daily nutrition regimen look like? Um, well, there's some very variety day to day. I mean, some of the things that are consistent is I tend to eat three or four times. Um, all my meals have protein. And they have fruits and veggies, and they have some fat and some carbohydrate. So it's it's amazingly non fadtastic. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, it's eat, based on your habits. It is. As it's, it should be. It's, I eat gluten. I eat dairy. I eat bread. I eat, you know, a lot of things, um, and I enjoy it all. I uh, I tend toward for my proteins. I like egg whites, eggs, chicken, fish. Those are my main ones. I eat some some dairy and cheese. My body doesn't like too much of it, but uh, so I do eat, I eat lots of chicken, lots of seafood, lots of eggs and egg whites. Um, rare on red meat, maybe once or twice a month. And is it because you don't like it, or because you don't think it's the best thing for you, or best thing for people in general? Um, there's research showing that it's not the best thing for health. I think. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's studies that show a high intake of red meat correlates with a lot of diseases. Um, so I try to make it, you know, I don't swear it off. I just try and make it less frequent. And the fact is I enjoy chicken, fish and beef and pork all relatively equally. So I'm like, all right, I'll just go with, (laughs) go with the ones that are most beneficial for health. If somebody does like red meat and they want to have it, you know, more frequently than I personally choose to, I, it's totally fine. I I don't tell other people that they have to eat the same way I do. I just emphasize that an overall diet that's moderate in fat is going to be better than if you're consuming a lot of fat. And Mm -hmm. if people consume a lot of red meat, it does tend to be higher in fat if they're choosing things like Sausage and hamburgers. Oh yeah, makes sense. So, Absolutely. if somebody does like red meat and they want to choose it a few times a week, then I would just uh, advise looking at leaner cuts and how to make them taste good. Mm-hmm. Sounds fair. Um, yeah, I eat tons of fruits and veggies. Um, I like all kinds of fruits and veggies too. Um, you name it, I like it. Um, uh, for my carbs, I like I pretty much go for whole grains or beans or potatoes or squash. Um, I try and not have too much white flour, um, but I have it now and then. Like, for example, if I want to um, have a slice of pizza from a pizzeria, I'm not going to be like, oh, there's no whole wheat. Never mind. I won't have any. Like, I'm going to have a piece of pizza and not worry about it. So um, most, I, you know, most of the time I eat whole grain. Um, one of the, the unique things about my life is because I deal with chronic back pain. It's it's painful for me to sit for a length of time. 
And that as a byproduct means that I really don't go to restaurants anymore, which, you know, is the real silver lining because, you know, eating home cooking really puts you uh, ahead of the game in terms of one, not having a lot of temptations. And two, the food that we make at home tends to just be healthier than mm-hmm. uh, food in restaurants. How is your <laughs> how is your back issues limited your your physical activity? Because, like on your book cover, you're absolutely shredded. I mean, are you still able to lift weights? You know, what what does your exercise regimen look like, and how have you what adjustments have you had to make since? You know, I've had to make quite a lot. So the the book cover photo was shot in 2012, and that was like really right when my back. Uh, issues were starting. Mm-hmm. So I was lifting weights at that point, not really doing any cardio. And I guess I'm I'm living proof that what you eat really is 90% of the battle. And, you know, muscle size is definitely uh, contingent upon pushing heavy things around. So when my back got worse, I did have to give up pushing heavy weights. And then I had to give up pushing light weights too. And then I even had to limit my walking. So at this point, my physical activity is about 5,000 steps a day of very easy walking. So it's, it's not a whole lot. Um, my body weight hasn't gone up. Uh, if anything, I'm about five pounds lighter than I was on the cover of the book because my muscles shrunk when I stopped lifting heavy things. So um, a lot of my clients, they, no one wants to be rude and be like, so did you did you get a little fat? Like no one ever asks that, but I I, I usually tell them like, it's okay to wonder. And no, I didn't get fat. I just got a little skinnier. Uh, It's been a challenge. It's been a challenge. It's given me a lot, a lot to think about. (laughs) A lot to think about in terms of who I am. And, you know, for sure, I identified a lot of my self-worth and my identity by being a marathon runner and a triathlete and, um, you know, somebody who could do X pull-ups and, you know, lift X pounds. Um, and I had to really reevaluate a lot of that. Um, and I don't, I don't want to sound like a a hallmark card. That's like good things come from going through hard stuff. Uh, like some of it just downright sucked. Yeah. But, uh, and one thing that I learned that I think other people that go through their own trials and tribulations is that you learn how resilient you are and you think, Oh, if X happens, my world will end. And then X actually happens. And you realize you wake up the next day, you feed the dog and you carry on. And um, it helped me a lot personally, I think, um, in becoming a better coach. (laughs) It gave me a lot more time to read research now that I couldn't go to the gym. (laughs) Um, And it it gave me a lot of skills that I had to look up to handle my own emotional fallout from, you know, basically dealing with going from being an able-bodied person to a disabled person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I got, I got a counselor, I needed professional help and they taught me a lot of tools that I now pass on to my clients. And yeah. it's, it's exciting if nothing, <laughs> if nothing else. And there's, there's still the chance that it's going to improve. You know, I've been kind of in dealing with the back pain chapter for about five years, but out of a lifetime, that's not all that long. You right. know, this could be a phase that, you know, fades out. Uh, nobody really knows with back pain. There's a lot of unknowns about it. Yeah, it is somewhat nebulous, but certainly hope that uh, improves for you. you know? Yeah, thanks. Well, let me ask. So I've actually been following you. I remember in the old uh, Precision Nutrition Forum days. Oh, you're going way back now. Probably like 10, <laughs> like 10 years ago. I remember you yep. having a pretty strong presence when I first found out about Precision Nutrition, started to dive into some of that stuff. 
And I remember, you know, you standing out in terms of the forums, having, having great advice. What has been the biggest stimulus um, for you to, to branch off? Because you were, at one point you were involved with precision nutrition and then you branched off into, and started your one-by-one one nutrition right now. What, what was sort of the biggest impetus for you to, to make that change? Well, um, while I was working at Precision Nutrition, even before I was working at Precision Nutrition, I met Roland Fisher. Um, who is now my husband, and we did meet through the nutrition community there, and we both had a passion for learning as much as we could about it, um, both in the research side as well as the practical side. Um, and we both coached for the Lean Eating Program, and it's a great experience to coach a large volume of people. And coming from that, we both had a lot of ideas about you know, things that we wanted to try that were a bit different from the model that Precision Nutrition employs. And so we decided that we wanted to do our own version of nutrition coaching. And when we started, we did exclusively one-on-one. And, you know, every coach has their own like specialty, right? And so one of my favorites is I love one-on-one conversation. Like I just, I put me in the middle of a party and I'm like, <laughs> but I can sit down with a, a person and like excavate their soul and tell them mine. And it's like a beautiful experience. And so I always crave that. And I missed that from my private nutrition coaching days. So when we started doing the one-on-one coaching, um, it was just a fantastic uh, departure from doing it in a group in a really refreshing way. And it gave us the opportunity to test drive different things. And so um, Roland shares with me the same dedication to doing things that are evidence-based and continually changing. Um, and so you know, the habits that we started with were, were different six months in and then were different six months after that. And they're, they're different now and next year they'll be different than they are. Um, I mean, I guess that's one of the wonderful things about being in charge of your own program is that you can, you can add and modify and iterate and uh, we just hope that we never stop iterating. And we've been able to uh, build into the one-by-one nutrition community a lot of really incredible people. Like we, we say to each other, like, wow, where did we get these coaches from? They're just amazing. You know, we, uh, we partnered, partnered with Josh Hillis last year. Um, you may know him. He's done you know, some really fantastic work with Dan John. Yeah, um, I've, I've read their book as well. Yeah. Yeah. Fat loss happens on Monday is a fantastic yeah. uh, book for, for the cryptic title. <laughs> it compliments um, your book very well. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I, I take that as like a huge compliment because I think, I think those two are, are, are gods in my eyes and uh, they, I think Roland and I and, and Josh all see very eye to eye and we all make each other better when the three of us get in a room and we brainstorm. It's like, all three of us come out going like, did that really happen? Like, wow, I need to give me, give me a notepad. I have to write stuff down. Um, and we all find a, a really great harmony with the three of us working. And then we have um, three other very, very excellent coaches that work with us that we've uh, trained in various aspects that are um, really skilled. Uh, is Kara? Kara Kara's one of them, right? Yep. Kara Butel. Have you met her? I went to grad school with her oh, through University really? of Bridgeport. 
Now, really? to be yeah. fair, it's, it's an online program, but you get to know people through the, the forums and, and the classes and communication and stuff like that. So I believe we only met when we had to show up and take the comprehensive final exam, but nonetheless. I, yeah. If I recall, she was very pregnant at that point. Mm, yeah. <laughs> right. That, oh, that's right. That's, that's awesome. But that's great. Yeah. That, she was, she was working with us at that point. And Kara's fantastic. You probably uh, would have a, a great interview with her. She's doing some awesome stuff um, at raising nutrition and, you know, as a mom and having a master's in nutrition, she just has so mm, much wonderful stuff to share phenomenal. from the perspective of, uh, you know, motherhood and, and young child nutrition. I'll definitely uh, reconnect with her. That would be great. That's 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 some good stuff to talk to talk about that I'm very interested in. I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to ha- I have one more question. So what are some what are two or three resources that you've been learning from this past year? The number one person that I learn from is Roland Fisher every day. Um and I think surrounding yourselves whether it's a personal relationship or a professional relationship with somebody that challenges your thinking, somebody that's um equal to you or greater in creativity is just a fantastic thing to benefit from. Uh, surround yourselves with, with bright people. Um, I feel like my coworkers, uh, Kara, Mary Claire, Josh and Sarah Campbell, um, all of them, they just, every time I talk with these people, they make me want to rise to a higher level of nutrition coaching. Um, after the coaches or possibly equal to the coaches I learned from my clients. My clients tell me stuff every day that I would not have thought of. Um, they make me a better coach every time. Everyone's going, research, yes. I would not be the full-fledged geek that I am if I did not admit that reading research on a regular basis is, I feel, absolutely critical to staying current because the field of nutrition, uniquely amongst medical fields, is just going, I mean, I won't say, not uniquely among medical fields, but like among the top uh, areas in which there's just continually churning out new developments and new discoveries, especially when it comes to neuroscience and appetite regulation, like there's not enough hours in the day to read. Um, off the, off of that, I think that uh, reading books about acceptance and commitment therapy has been really helpful for me as a coach, as well as a human being going through challenges mm-hmm. and wanting to deal with them without self-combusting or eating endless sleeves of Oreos. <laughs> is there is there one specifically that you would recommend? Yes. Um, for practitioners, uh, The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris is a fantastic book. It's got a great big yellow smiley face on the cover. Um, for people who have undergone something difficult or just want to be able to better handle rough stuff, um, same author, Dr. Russ Harris, a book called The Reality Slap. Kind of like when reality cool. slaps you upside the head. Um, Great. And so I think those are, are you know really excellent ones. And then in terms of writing and humor, I am loving the work of uh, an author named Helen Russell. Helen Russell wrote two books that I have chewed up like candy. Uh, one is called The Year of Living Danishly, and it's about moving to another country, uh, Denmark and why people in that society are so happy. And it just comes down to so many aspects of the society. And she wrote a a book called The Leap Year, which is about handling change. And she consults a lot of experts. And I, uh, if I ever write a book that is as entertaining and humorous as hers, I will, uh, I will feel 
very proud of myself. Do you have another book in the pipeline? Kind of. I've been, uh, I do recipes quite a bit. Mm. So I'm, I'm constantly cooking things and squirreling them away in a folder that one day, you know, there might be another, you know, maybe there'll be a racing weight cookbook too one day. Um, and then I, I have in my brain that, you know, there's so many topics that are related, but separate from lean habits, such as like, I feel like an entire volume could be written on emotional eating. An entire volume could be written on binge eating, which isn't even touched upon. But like binge eating is a very real phenomenon for a large um, proportion of the population. Um, and there's just, there's just, there's so many things to write about in terms of you know life and food, and uh, it all keeps changing so fast, and I get ideas so fast that uh, I don't know if I'll ever keep up with all of them. <laughs> Sounds like you're doing a pretty good job. And uh, so with that, I'm, I'm going to let you go enjoy your vacation. Thank you so much for the time uh, that you Thank spent. you so much. I appreciate it so much. Where can people find you, Georgie? Uh, people can find me at onebyonenutrition.com. And you got to spell out the numbers. So O-N-E-B-Y-O-N-E, nutrition.com. You can also find me on Facebook. I'm... Uh, God, I love Facebook and the internet. It keeps me very connected with people around the world. So feel free to shoot me a friend request on Facebook. And for personal stuff, I will throw articles and blog entries up at georgiefear.com. So you can always find me there. Beautiful. Thanks again. And uh, for all you listening, make sure you, uh, you pick up Georgie's book, Lean Habits for Lifelong Weight Loss. Like I said, it was a game changer for me as from a coach standpoint, but also from a, you know just managing my own nutrition in a realistic way, helping my family, my loved ones manage their nutrition. Obviously, I, I strongly recommend it. And, uh, and the audiobook is coming out June 6th. Ah, beauty. Just gotten yeah. into audiobooks. And, and so that's great. So keep an eye out for that. I'll plug uh, Georgie's information in the notes below. Make sure you guys subscribe to the podcast and head over and, and check out Georgie's site, one by one nutrition.com. Thanks again, Georgie. Thank Take you, care. Ben. Bye. 